Chapter Two of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Two Quote, Sola, Sola, Wo, Ha, Ho, Sola. Unquote. By Shakespeare. While one of the lovely beings we have so curiously presented to the reader was thus lost in thought, the other quickly recovered from the alarm which had induced the exclamation, and, laughing at her own weakness, she inquired of the youth who rode by her side, Are such spectres frequent in the woods, Hayward? Or is this sight an especial entertainment ordered on our behalf? If the latter, gratitude must close our mouths. But if the former, both Cora and I shall have need to draw largely on that stock of hereditary courage which we boast, even before we were made to encounter the redoubtable Montcalm. Yon Indian is a runter of the army, and after the fashion of his people he may be accounted a hero, returned the officer. He has volunteered to guide us to the lake by a path but little known sooner than if we followed the tardy movements of the column, and, by consequence, more agreeably. "'I like him not,' said the lady, shuddering, partly in assumed yet more in real terror. "'You know him, Duncan? Or would you not trust yourself so freely to his keeping?' "'Say rather, Alice, that I would not trust you. I do know him, or he would not have my confidence.' and least of all at this moment. He is said to be a Canadian, too, and yet he served with our friends the Mohawks, who, as you know, are one of the six allied nations. He was brought among us, as I have heard, by some strange accident in which your father was interested, and in which the savage was rigidly dealt by. But I forget the idle tale. It is enough he is now our friend. If he has been my father's enemy— "'I like him still less!' exclaimed the now really anxious girl. "'Will you not speak to him, Major Hayward, that I may hear his tones? "'Foolish though it may be, you have often heard me avow my faith in the tones of the human voice.' "'It would be in vain, and answered most probably by an ejaculation. "'Though he may understand it, he affects like most of his people to be ignorant of the English.' And least of all will he condescend to speak it, now that the war demands the utmost exercise of his dignity. But he stops. The private path by which we are to journey is doubtless at hand. The conjecture of Major Hayward was true. When they reached the spot where the Indians stood pointing into the thicket that fringed the military road, a narrow and blind path, which might with some little inconvenience receive one person at a time, became visible. "'Here, then, lies our way,' said the young man in a low voice. "'Manifest no distrust, or you may invite the danger you appear to apprehend.' "'Cora, what think you?' asked the reluctant fair one. "'If we journey with the troops, though we may find their presence irksome, shall we not feel better assurance of our safety?' "'Being little accustomed to the practices of the savages, Alice,' "'You mistake the place of real danger,' said Hayward. 
if enemies have reached the portage at all, a thing by no means probable, as our scouts are abroad, they will surely be found skirting the column where scalps abound most. The route of the detachment is known, while ours, having been determined within the hour, must still be secret. Should we distrust the man, because his manners are not our manners, and that his skin is dark? coldly asked Cora. Alice hesitated no longer, but giving her Narragansett a smart cut of the whip, she was the first to dash aside the slight branches of the bushes, and to follow the runner along the dark entangled pathway. Footnote. In the state of Rhode Island there is a bay called Narragansett, so named after a powerful tribe of Indians which formerly dwelt on its banks. Accident, or one of those unaccountable freaks which nature sometimes plays in the animal world, gave rise to a breed of horses which were once well known in America, and distinguished by their habit of pacing. Horses of this race were, and are still, in much request as saddle horses, on account of their hardiness and the ease of their movements. As they were also sure of foot, the Narragansett were greatly sought for by females who were obliged to travel over the roots and holes in the new countries. End of footnote. The young man regarded the last speaker in open admiration, and even permitted her fairer, though certainly not more beautiful companion, to proceed unattended, while he sedulously opened the way himself for the passage of her, who has been called Cora. It would seem that the domestics had been previously instructed, for, instead of penetrating the thicket, they followed the route of the column, a measure which Hayward stated had been dictated by the sagacity of their guide in order to diminish the marks of their trail, if, haply, the Canadian savages should be lurking so far in advance of their army. For many minutes the intricacy of the route admitted of no further dialogue, after which they emerged from the broad border of underbrush which grew along the line of the highway, and entered under the high but dark arches of the forest. Here their progress was less interrupted, and the instant the guide perceived that the females could command their steeds, he moved on at a pace between a trot and a walk, and at a rate which kept the sure-footed and peculiar animals they rode at a fast yet easy amble. The youth had turned to speak to the dark-eyed Cora, when the distant sound of horses' hoofs, clattering over the roots of the broken way in its rear, caused him to check his charger, and, as his companions drew their reins at the same instant, the whole party came to a halt, in order to obtain an explanation of the unlooked-for interruption. In a few moments a colt was seen gliding like a fallow deer among the straight trunks of the pines, and in another instant the person of the ungainly man described in the preceding chapter came into view, with as much rapidity as he could excite his meagre beast to endure, without coming to an open rupture. Until now, his personage had escaped the observation of the travellers. If he possessed the power to arrest any wandering eye when exhibiting the glories of his altitude on foot, his equestrian graces were still more likely to attract attention. Notwithstanding a constant application of his one-armed heel to the flanks of the mare, the most confirmed gait that he could establish was a Canterbury gallop with the hind legs, in which those more forward assisted for doubtful moments and generally content to maintain a loping trot. Perhaps the rapidity of the changes from one of these paces to the other created an optical illusion, 
which might thus magnify the powers of the beast. For it is certain that Hayward, who possessed a true eye for the merits of a horse, was unable with his utmost ingenuity to decide by what sort of movement his pursuer worked his sinuous way on his footsteps with such persevering hardihood. The industry and the movements of the rider were not less remarkable than those of the ridden. At each change in the evolutions of the latter, the former raised his tall person in the stirrups, producing in this matter, by the undue elongation of his legs, such sudden growths and diminishings of the stature, as baffled every conjecture that might be made as to his dimensions. If to this be added the fact, in consequence of the ex parte application of the spur, one side of the emir appeared to journey faster than the other, and that the aggrieved flank was resolutely indicated by unremitted flourishes of a bushy tail. We finish the picture of both horse and man. The frown which had gathered around the handsome, open, and manly brow of Hayward gradually relaxed, and his lips curled into a slight smile as he regarded the stranger. Alice made no very powerful effort to control her merriment, and even the dark, thoughtful eye of Cora lighted with the humor that it would seem the habit rather than nature of its mistress repressed. "'Seek you any here?' demanded Hayward, when the other had arrived sufficiently nigh to abate his speed. "'I trust you are no messenger of evil tidings?' "'Even so,' replied the stranger, making diligent use of his triangular caster to produce a circulation in the close air of the woods, and leaving his hearers in doubt to which of the young man's questions he responded. When, however, he had cooled his face and recovered his breath, he continued, "'I hear you are riding to William Henry. As I am journeying thitherward myself, I concluded good company would seem consistent to the wishes of both parties.' "'You appear to possess the privilege of a casting vote,' returned Hayward. "'We are three, while you have consulted no one but yourself. "'Even so, the first point to be obtained is to know one's own mind. "'One sure of that, and where women are concerned it is not easy. "'The next is to act up to the decision. "'I have endeavored to do both, and here I am.' "'If you make the journey to the lake, you have mistaken your route,' said Hayward haughtily. "'The highway thither is least a half a mile behind you.' "'Even so,' replied the stranger, nothing daunted by his cold reception. "'I have tarried at Edward a week, and I should be dumb not to have inquired the road I was to journey. And if dumb, there would be an end to my calling.' After simpering in a small way, like one whose modesty— prohibited a more open expression of his admiration of a witticism that was perfectly unintelligible to his hearers, he continued, "'Is it not prudent for any one of my profession to be too familiar with those he has to instruct, for which reason I follow not the line of the army? Besides which, I conclude that a gentleman of your character is the best judgment in matters of wayfaring. I have therefore decided to join company.' in order that the ride may be made agreeable and partake of social communion. "'A most arbitrary, if not a hasty decision!' exclaimed Hayward, undecided whether to give vent to his growing anger or to laugh in the other's face. "'But you speak of instruction, and of a profession. Are you an adjunct to the provincial corps, as a master of the noble science of defense and offense, or perhaps 
You're the one who draws lines and angles under the pretense of expounding the mathematics? The stranger regarded his interrogator for a moment in wonder, and then, losing every mark of self-satisfaction, in an expression of solemn humility, he answered, Of offense I hope there is none to either party. Of defense I make none. By God's good mercy, having committed no palpable sin since last entreating his pardon and grace. I understand not your illusions about lines and angles, and I leave expounding to those who have been called and set apart for that holy office. I lay claim to no higher gift than a small insight into the glorious art of petitioning and thanksgiving as practiced in psalmody. This man is most manifestly a disciple of Apollo, cried the amused Alice, and I take him under my own especial protection. Nay, throw aside that frown, Hayward, and in pity to my longing ears, suffer him to journey in our trade. Besides, she added in a low and hurried voice, casting a glance at the distant Cora, who slowly followed the footsteps of their silent but sullen guide, it may be a friend added to our strength in the time of need. Think you, Alice, that I would trust those I love by this secret path? Did I imagine such need could happen? Nay, nay, I think not of it now. But this strange man amuses me, and if he hath music in his soul, let us not curlishly reject his company. She pointed persuasively along the path with her riding-whip, while her eyes met in a look which the young men lingered a moment to prolong. Then, yielding to her gentle influence, he clapped his spurs to his charger, and in a few bounds was again at the side of Cora. "'I am glad to encounter thee, friend,' continued the maiden, waving her hand to the stranger to proceed, as she urged her Narragansett to renew its amble. "'Partial relatives have almost persuaded me that I am not entirely worthless in a duet myself, and we may enliven our wayfaring by indulging in our favorite pursuit. It might be of signal advantage to one ignorant as I, to hear the opinions and experience of a master of the art. It is refreshing both to the spirits and the body to indulge in psalmody, in befitting seasons, returned the master of song, unhesitatingly complying with her intimation to follow, and nothing would relieve the mind more than such a consoling communion. But four parts are altogether necessary for the perfection of melody. You have all the manifestations of a soft and rich treble. I can, by a special aid, carry a full tenor to the highest letter. But we lack counter and bass. Yon officer of the king who hesitated to admit me to his company might fill the letter, if one may judge from the intonations of his voice in common dialogue. Judge not too rashly from hasty and deceptive appearances, said the lady, smiling. Though Major Hayward can assume such deep notes on occasion, believe me, his natural tones are better fitted to a mellow tenor than the bass you heard. Is he, then, much practiced in the art of psalmody? demanded her simple companion. Alice felt disposed to laugh, though she succeeded in suppressing her merriment ere she answered. I apprehend that he is rather addicted to profane song. The chances of a soldier's life are but little fitted to the encouragement of more sober inclinations. Man's voice was given to him, like his other talents, to be used, and not to be abused. None can say they have ever known me to neglect my gifts. I am thankful that through my boyhood may be said to have been set apart, like the youth of the royal David for the purposes of music, 
no syllable of rude verse has ever profaned my lips. You have then limited your efforts to sacred song? Even so, as the psalms of David exceed all other language, so does the psalmody that has been fitted to them by the divines and sages of the land surpass all vain poetry. Happily, I may say, that I utter nothing but the thoughts and wishes of the king of Israel himself. For though the times may call for some slight changes, yet does this version which we use in the colonies of New England so much exceed all other versions, that by its richness, its exactness, and its spiritual simplicity, it approaches as near as may be the great work of the inspired writer. I never abide in any place, sleeping or waking, without an example of this gifted work. Tis the sixth and twentieth edition, promulgated at Boston, Año Domini, 1744, and is entitled, The Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs of the Old and New Testaments, faithfully translated into English meter for the use, edification, and comfort of the saints, in public and private, especially in New England. During his eulogium on the rare production of his native poets, the stranger had drawn the book from his pocket, and fitting a pair of iron-rimmed spectacles to his nose, opened the volume with a care and veneration suited to its sacred purposes. Then, without circumlocution or apology, first pronounced the word Standish, and placing the unknown engine already described to his mouth, from which he drew a high shrill sound that was followed by an octave below from his own voice, he commenced singing the following words in full, sweet, and melodious tones that set the music, the poetry, and even the uneasy motion of his ill-trained beast at defiance. How good it is, O sea, and how it pleaseth well, together e'en in unity, for brethren so to dwell. It's like the choice ointment, from the head to the beard did go, down Aaron's head that downward went, his garment skirts unto. The delivery of these skilful rhymes was accompanied on the part of the stranger by a regular rise and fall of his right hand, which terminated at the descent by suffering the fingers to dwell a moment on the leaves of the little volume, and on ascent by a flourish of the member, as none but the initiated might ever hope to imitate. It would seem long practice had rendered this manual accompaniment necessary, for it did not cease until the proposition which the poet had selected for the close of his verse had been duly delivered, like a word of two syllables. Such an innovation on the silence and the retirement of the forest could not fail to enlist the ears of those who journeyed at so short a distance in advance. The Indian muttered a few words in broken English to Hayward, who in his turn spoke to the stranger, at once interrupting and for the time closing his musical efforts. Though we are not in danger, common prudence would teach us to journey through this wilderness in as quiet a manner as possible. You will then pardon me, Alice, should I diminish your enjoyments, by requesting this gentleman to postpone his chant until a safer opportunity. You will diminish them indeed, returned the arch-girl, for never did I hear a more unworthy conjunction of execution and language than that to which I have been listening. And... I was far gone in a learned inquiry into the causes of such an unfitness between sound and sense, when you broke the charm of my musing by that bass of yours, Duncan. I know not what you call my bass, said Hayward, piqued at her remark, 
but I know that your safety in that of Cora is far dearer to me than could be any orchestra of Handel's music. He paused and turned his head quickly toward a thicket, and then bent his eyes suspiciously on their guide, who continued his steady pace in undisturbed gravity. The young man smiled to himself, for he believed he had mistaken some shining berry of the woods for the glistening eyeballs of a prowling savage, as he rode forward continuing the conversation which had been interrupted by the passing thought. Major Hayward was mistaken only in suffering his youthful and generous pride to suppress his act of watchfulness. The cavalcade had not long passed before the branches of the bushes that formed the thicket were cautiously moved asunder, and a human visage, as fiercely wild as savage art and unbridled passions could make it, peered out on the retiring footsteps of the travelers. A gleam of exultation shot across the darkly painted lineaments of the inhabitant of the forest, as he traced the route of his intended victims, who rode unconsciously onward, the light and graceful forms of the females waving among the trees in the curvatures of their path, followed at each bend by the manly figure of Hayward, until finally the shapeless person of the singing master was concealed behind the numberless trunks of trees that rose in dark lines in the intermediate space. End of chapter 2 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007.